Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Okay, I've got an amazing story for you. So I'm reading this book called Gulp by Mary Roach, which is so funny. I've literally been like bursting into laughter reading it. It's disgusting. It's all about your digestive system and all the gross taboo things that you don't really want to think about. She writes about it. And I tweeted the other day that I'm loving this book and I added her you know, on Twitter and she responded and then followed me back. So just on a lark, I was like, well, would you like to come on my podcast? And she said, yes. So today's patient is Mary Roach. She is the author of six New York Times bestselling books, including Stiff, Gulp, Spook, and her most recent, Fuzz. And she's been called America's Funniest Science Writer by the Washington Post. And in today's session, we talk all about how she maintains her curiosity about things. It's all about reaching out and expanding your world, meeting new people, trying new things. And then I think we, t- yeah, we tend to kind of constrict. The very strange situations that she's found herself in as a writer. And I found on a some bulletin board, I, I said, I, I'm volunteering to be somebody's pee buddy. And, and what it's like eating narwhals. So it's very fresh. And uh, it's kind of like gym flooring, you know, kind of bounces when you set it down on the table. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Mary Roach. All right, Mary. Well, thank you so much for doing lunch therapy. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, likewise. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I was just I just tweeted that how exciting it was that like I was reading a book and I tweeted about how much I liked it. And now the author is coming on my podcast. And I guess Twitter is not a cesspool after all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, it's still. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, but, but it's I, um, my cesspool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I have to say, like, I feel like you, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, like, you pick up a book and start reading it, and the author's voice immediately connects with you, and you just love it. So I'm loving having discovered you, and you're you're just right up my alley. So oh, um, oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, no, I yeah, I've definitely have had that experience. Yeah. Well, so this book that I'm currently reading is Gulp which um, I guess came out a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. and, and you've written some other books since then, most recently Fuzz, right? Yeah, that's right. Fuzz, and, um, yeah. But, but as a food writer, I guess Gulp is the one that's like grabbing my attention right now. And I guess as a starting point, I wanted to ask you before we get to your lunch, how writing this book about the digestive system and alimentary canal has affected your experience of eating food and if it has affected it at all. <laughs> yeah, it did, especially um, when I was working on the book. I mean, it's not so much a lingering thing, but when I was, work- when I was working on the book and I was reporting that chapter where I go to Food Valley, where they mm-hmm. study um, chewing and the, the, like the physiology of what is going on in your mouth. And I would become, I, I was become very aware of what was doing. I was like, Oh, I'm doing intraoral bolus rolling right now. <laughs> yeah. That's what I oh, said yeah. to you over email. I was like, I'm excited to hear about your lunch bolus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just the word bolus. I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of the word bolus, but, but like, you know, and you're, you're, um, you're basically taking something apart and then putting it back together using saliva as the kind of cement to form the bolus, you know, it has to be a bolus uh-huh. and then, and then, it, you know, and making it slippery, <laughs> and then <laughs> swallowing it down. But you're doing, you know, you're, do, you, you think you're eating, but you're actually like doing this whole kind of weird deconstruction construction thing in your mouth. And I got to be kind of aware of that. And I would also mm. like at restaurants, I would look at people and be kind of disgusted disgusted you know like 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 people shouldn't do this in public 
<laughs> it is funny because like some people hate the sounds of chewing. And That's I wonder right. if it's, it's just those people are actually keyed into what's really happening. And the rest of us are the are the disturbed ones. Um, yeah, the rest of us are in denial totally. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of things like, you know, stomach acids and I don't know, all the other things you write about. I mean, like when you eat food, are you like, oh, this is going to do a number on my on my stomach or this is like, are you conscious of all how the food you're choosing to eat will affect you based on the research you've done? Oh, hell no. No, I'm, I'm very much, I'm very much of the mindset. I'm going to eat this and see what, and assume that I'll be fine. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I I love hot things. I love anything. I love to try new weird things like the numbing spice. I remember a few years back, the first time Mm -hmm. I encountered that. So I'm always kind of looking for novelty and strange experiences. And I think, you know, if something happens, it, it happens. I don't, I don't give a whole lot of thought to the um, the dangers of what I'm about to put into the tube. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. I mean, actually, it's interesting because the whole premise of this podcast is there's a nexus between what we eat and who we are. And even just hearing you just talk about that, like it, it feels so you in terms of being an adventurer and just choosing these crazy subjects and putting yourself in unexpected situations. And that, that it's the same thing with yeah. what you eat. So yeah. Yeah. I, and I used to be more that way. I remember, and, and I think it was a, when I was younger, it was kind of a way to show off. Like I do remember being at this dinner in a uh, Chinese restaurant somewhere in San Francisco. And I ordered something with, um, it was, I don't know if it was the main ingredient. I think it may have been, but it was like fetal duck bills or something. It was, <laughs> it was like beaks. And, and I thought, well, I just want to try it. And the person next to me was John Carroll. The, I, I still remember the San Francisco Chronicle columnist. He like he turned to me and he goes, why? <laughs> <laughs> of course, nobody else wanted it. Oh and God. in the end, I didn't really want it. And I mean, not to say that there's anything. I mean, it, it's, you know, these things are cultural. There's nothing, yes. nothing wrong with beaks, but um, uh, it was a challenging uh, yeah. decision. And I, I think I just did it partly to show off in a way, like, look how brave I am. Cause I didn't did, eat the, did, I didn't eat the beaks. <laughs> yeah. Did it, do you remember what it tasted like? No, it was more of a, te- I think it was more of a textural thing. Right. Um, yeah. I did the same thing not long ago. I ordered chicken knuckles uh, oh. at, at a Korean place, which is what you would think it's the ends of little bones. It's, it's gnarly and gristly and hard to eat, but I was curious because they're yeah. charred. And I thought, well, maybe, I mean, that actually sounded like it might be delicious. Um, it just was a little knuckly let's say knuckly. <laughs> you, you literally had a knuckle sandwich, I had uh, a knuckle sandwich. <laughs> yeah. exactly. it's actually funny there's this book by a, a, a food writer named fuchsia dunlop who wrote a book called shark's fin and szechuan pepper and i don't know if the story is apocryphal but she goes to china and she goes to this restaurant that's famous for serving you any part of any animal that you want to eat and she says somebody there ordered a panda's paw and uh the next day she went to the zoo and she (gasps) saw the panda cage and the panda was missing a paw. No, (laughs) I don't know if that can be true, but, um, that that stuck with me. So yeah, there's no, well, the other question I wanted to ask you before we start with your lunch is just the idea of disgust, which is a big subject. It seems like at least in this book. Um, and I guess like, have you always been fascinated in things that most people find gross? say as well, I was gonna say not not as a kid um yeah I, I I don't know where I don't know where this started certainly as a writer um early in my career I used to cover things that were 
uh, considered by many to, in our culture anyway to be gross. But mm-hmm. you know, to be fair, if you are in that other culture, there's plenty of things in our culture. Oh, of course, that are yeah. gross. So I, you know, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to be sure. Like a bag of Doritos is probably actually more gross than a <laughs> yeah. duck's bill. So yeah, exactly. Twinkies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so so um, yeah, it's. I don't know where that where that comes from. Maybe um, maybe just that specifically is interesting to me. The um, the difference culturally in what we think of as disgust. And also I remember stumbling onto the works of Paul Rosen, R-O-Z-I-N, who did this mm-hmm. really, to me, fascinating work with kids um, looking at, you know, uh, at what age do kids start to say, ooh, that's disgusting. And, mm-hmm. it, and it doesn't kick in for a while. I forget the age, but, you know, for, and, and I've seen this with my, my grandkids too, the, the, uh, the, um, that they early on will eat just about any, let's just put anything in their mouth. And I, and the kids that Rosin studied uh, had no problem with one of the th- items they were presented with was um, fake dog shit, which was, <laughs> me- he used like blue cheese for the smell. Oh, and he had, oh no, and he had, Lovingly crafted by grad students, I imagine. <laughs> um, and he, uh, a, an, a sterilized grasshopper, I think he presented them with. The only thing that they balked at was a human hair, because oh. that doesn't seem like food. You know, and oh. it wasn't. Um, but anyway, the, the rest of it, they would just like stick it in their mouth, like, oh, this looks good. Uh, and, it, you know, so, so then at a certain point, they start to absorb cultural or just from their parents or their mm-hmm. peers. They start to absorb all the kind of trappings of our cultural sense of disgust, uh, but which I found really interesting. That was early on in my writing career. I came across mm-hmm. that work, and I think maybe that's where I, I kind of first got interested in it. You know, I was a psych, I was a psychology major, and I maybe I even heard about it in uh, back then. I don't know. Well, it's just funny because like I'll be reading this in bed, and my husband's like, you know, what are you reading? And last night I was like, well, I'm reading a chapter where um, somebody is testing to see whether a living creature can live inside of a stomach. So uh, they cut <laughs> the stomach open of a dog and dangle a live frog inside of it and see what happens. And you know, the frog melts. Or whatever. Yeah. He's like, he was like, what kind of book is this? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm talking to the author tomorrow. So. <laughs> well, that would be a Mary Roach book. <laughs> yeah. Mary Roach book. Well, this is a good segue into the, the main event, which is your lunch therapy session. So yes. without further ado, what did you have for lunch today? Uh, I had some leftovers from yesterday. Uh, I'm a, um, the first thing, yes, you can learn about me uh, by my lunch choices is that I'm that I'm cheap. <laughs> I always, okay. I always take the left when I uh, eat out for dinner and, and um, have them for lunch. But this was a, this was a rice bowl from this Japanese place down the street. I'm also lazy. So it's going to be within a radius of a quarter of a mile because mm-hmm. that's as far as I'll walk to get takeout. Uh, so it's, a, it was a rice bowl with uh, um, seaweed, burdock, Mushroom, salmon, avocado, and brown rice, which makes me sound super healthy, and I'm I'm <laughs> not because I what well, I'll do I'll eat that and then like I'll think have you know two hours from now I'll think because I ate that at lunch I get to go get a cheese Danish. Oh yeah, totally. I'm <laughs> the I same do, way. Yeah. yeah, I'll do a salad for lunch and then I'll like go to a pastry shop like three hours later. And yeah, kind of negate the salad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> then you don't feel guilty about the da- cheese Danish. Um, yeah. uh, but, uh, anyway, it's a, t- that pl- I, I just like that little Japanese place and, and, um, I, I like rice bowls in general. So, mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm not a big fan of the burdock. I don't really know what the what burdock is, but it has a sort of strong taste, and there's mm-hmm. burdock in that, but that's okay. I just well, leave yeah. It. Well, I feel like that's a very good place. This this bowl feels appropriate. It's like it's interesting. It's it's dynamic. It's got lots of elements. Um, and I guess my first question is: Are you a creature of habit? Like, what do you tend to eat the same things, uh, you know, day in day out, or do you change it up pretty much every day? Mm, partly because I'm lazy, um, it'll be. It's, I eat a lot of the same stuff. Like when I go down to my office, uh, mm-hmm. which is in downtown. Oakland when I'm I'm working out of my home these days, but there are it has partly to do with what's available nearby. But I mm-hmm. I would eat a lot of this. Like there's a burrito place that I mm-hmm. like. Um, there's a little place, this little convenience store that in the back corners as has Vietnamese food that I would get like mm-hmm. a kanji bowl. Although I that sounds more Chinese than Vietnamese. Anyway, they did like yeah. this great uh, kanji bowl, and I would it was like just. Um, with ginger and peanuts and, and something else in them, chicken maybe. But uh, so I'd get that a lot. And and then I went through a phase of bringing my own and I'm so lazy that I would just bring, you know, I just bring a piece of, you know, avocado and a piece of bread and do avocado toast. Mm-hmm. I'm so sick of avocado toast. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. know. I can't have it. Let me living just in California. It's everywhere. <laughs> done with it. I'm done with it. Um, <laughs> my husband and I eat a lot of just, you know, defrost a bagel bagel and mm-hmm. uh, you know bagel cream cheese smoked trout cucumber that's, that that's my good. bagel thing yeah 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 so you have your routine i mean you have the uh, things yeah, that you like. there's yeah. a pretty limited lunch menu of things mm-hmm. we have over and over but you know i do like to shake it up every <laughs> now and then well, it was funny. Like when when when, I, when people tell me what they have for lunch, I also listen to how they describe their lunch to see yeah. if I could pick up on anything. And I thought it was interesting that you said, "Well, first thing you'll learn about me is that I'm cheap, and the next thing you'll <laughs> learn about me is that I'm lazy." And it made me think about being a writer and kind of controlling the narrative. And it almost felt like, as somebody who writes these books and tells these stories, it was almost like you were doing the interpreting yourself, um, or sort of basically writing the narrative of your lunch yourself. And I'm curious, like. As somebody who talks about other people and describes other characters, is it hard for you, I guess, to have someone else get in there and and try to ex- examine your character? Maybe so. Maybe that was a preemptive strike. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think about that. Um, no, I think I because I knew you were going to do this. I was mm-hmm. sort of thinking about what what would that say? What does that say? What does this say about me? But um, mm-hmm. but I, I would love to hear your <laughs> take. Well, I mean, I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, like any good lunch therapist, I try not to diagnose as much as I try to draw out from my patient, you know, Uh as much as I can get. So, but I I just thought I was, I mean, you know, when I read this book, like the way you describe people, you know, sometimes it's like, it's like, oh, like I wonder, there was somebody you described as, um, not, not milk toast, but there was sort of benign. You said they were benign. They had like a kind of benign face. And uh, I was like, Ooh, I wonder how I would feel. You know, and I guess like, I'm curious, do you ever hear back from the people that you write about and who aren't pleased with how you depicted them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a guy who, um, it, it, this is in Grunt, uh, which had to do with military science. Mm-hmm. And um, I described him well he had a really <clears throat> a really interesting kind of swashbuckling type scar <clears throat> and um i in describing him i said something about the scar being kind of rakish 
Um, but the, and the, but I forget how I got around. I, but somewhere in the description, I described he has he has sort of long eyelashes and he cl- you know ha- closes his eyes. Oh, I know it was he closes his eyes kind of slowly. You know those dolls that you mm-hmm. lie on their back and they close yes. their eyes. So, <laughs> I, but I said he's he's rescued from the descriptor doll-like by this rakish scar. So anyway, uh, okay. but he glommed on to doll-like and also said that his children who are, um, I guess, teenagers had been mocking him. <laughs> had taken to calling him doll-like. <laughs> That's funny. And um, so he, yeah, I, I think he wasn't thrilled. I mean, he's, he's a good sport, but um, I think he probably wasn't thrilled with that. Yeah. Uh, descriptor. Um, well, that, yeah, that leads, you know. leads me to think a little bit about, I mean, another quality I think I've discovered in you and even just from reading you is just a, a certain fearlessness, like, or a courage just to kind of, I mean, even just the subjects of your books, like to just go there and be like, okay, I'm going to write a book about sex or I'm going to write a book about um, life after death or, or the, uh, and so I guess another question I would ask is, have you always been fearless? Mm, I'm trying to think of, of, you know, as a kid, um, I think maybe more reckless reckless okay like might (laughs) be the 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 better term well fear i i i enjoy uh i guess testing my limits Mm -hmm. Mm, i am i guess what is it the novelty seeking personality i think something i learned as a psych major so i guess maybe i'm one of those people but not the to the extent that i'm like skydiving every weekend or something Mm but um i i definitely uh I did go bungee jumping once for wow, a story, okay. which is really nothing like skydiving because you're tied to a piece of string. You know, you're, yeah. you're going to be fine. It's very low risk compared to skiing. They all sound terrifying to me, but I'm Jewish. So. <laughs> 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 um, well, I, I guess even in terms of your, the subjects that you write about, like when you like wrote, wrote the chapter about dangling the frog in the dog's stomach, like, are you like, oh, my editor is going to like squirm when they read this or are you just like screw them this is what i want to write about oh you mean the mealworm in the frog stomach oh that one too yeah, yeah. I mean, any of any of this oh, stuff yeah. is kind of you know I, I, need, I need to point out to people listening i did not do anything with the dog in the front no 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 historical. of course yeah, yeah that's historical. i should i'm but glad I, you said that yeah I, and, it was, I, and, and, and you definitely say that you were disturbed by it too so we should say i that. i i was however responsible mealworm tied to the string that the frog swallowed and then yes we looked in there but we didn't kill Nobody got killed there. We just peeked yeah. into the stomach, <laughs> okay. which was awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, where were we there? Oh, uh, my ad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I tend to think you know, with books, you, you know, that there's an, a set of breaks that can be applied in the form of your editor. Mm-hmm. So I think when I wrote Stiff, or I know when I wrote Stiff, I thought, well, if I've crossed the line here anywhere in terms of the tone or the content, my editor will flag it and tell me I should take it out. So Mm -hmm. I kind of just was, I let myself be the extremes of my, myself, you know, Mm -hmm. I I followed my curiosity without much thought for, will this upset or offend? I just Mm -hmm. thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to be me. Yeah. And uh, she didn't take stuff out. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it great is it's, it's, it kind of makes you uncomfortable to read some of this stuff. And it's like, that's probably good because you're kind of flouting taboos about subjects that we're not normally thinking about. So I think it, yeah. Yeah. I think it worked out. Okay. You know, I, I was a little, I was a little nervous when that book came out 
as to how it would be received mm -hmm. um, and whether people would find it, how people would react to it. So, um, you know, it, it all turned out fine in the end, but I, I was definitely nervous because it, mm -hmm. it's, a, um, you know, you, taboos are, there's a reason why they're taboo. Yeah. People don't want to go there. And yes. I like to go there. <laughs> I like to go there too. I mean, you know, it's funny. I think there's like a certain fascination. Uh, and again, I brought up being Jewish, but I don't know, like, like my family had no boundaries about talking about like going to the bathroom and stuff. And like my husband's family is not like that at all. Everything's very private. So it's like, it comes as a relief to read a book like this, where it's like, just everything's out there. There's no, you know, nothing is off limits. and <laughs> It feels liberating in a way. I'm sure you yeah. feel that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially because my parents were not like that. My dad. Um, I remember the, the only time I remember getting spanked by my dad was uh, when I was in, I think it's second or third or fourth grade. It had to be because this was in Vermont. Um, and I learned this word at school, which I didn't know what it meant. And I, uh, I said at the dinner table, my brother, Rip, his name is Rip. I said, Rip is a fucker <laughs> at the dinner table. No less. Yeah. And my father like hauled me off and spanked me. Um, he um, did not tolerate burping or mm. that, which consequently my brother and I, when we, to this day, when my brother and I get together and we are driving somewhere, we'll both get a can of Coke. Uh -huh. <laughs> and like and just burp. burp. <laughs> yes. Really loudly. Um, and uh, that would have absolutely killed my dad. Uh, yeah. He was, he's, he was, uh, he came here, uh, as a teenager from England. So he, you know, he's, mm. he's British upbringing and I don't know if that has anything to do with it. And my mom was, well, was also a little um, conservative, yeah. not making any fart jokes. I don't even remember mm -hmm. ever hearing my mother fart. <laughs> as far as I know, my mother never did fart. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, in terms of psychology, if I had to guess what your parents were like, I would have a hundred percent guessed that they were a little more uptight and a little more conservative because it just makes so much sense in terms of the, the glee it seems that you take in this rebellion of like writing about all this stuff. That seems like there's real pleasure and real, um, you know, I guess it's called yeah. reaction formation and psychology. Oh, like, good one. I like that. I only remember that from like my one psychology class, class I ever took, but I, I, you know, it spoke to me too, because my parents sure. wanted me to be a doctor and they wanted me to marry a woman. And it's like, now I'm a food writer who's married to a man. So it's like, yeah. there, there's a certain thrill and I think in, in flouting the, the things you grew up with, but I, yeah, for sure. So you grew up in New Hampshire, is that, mm -hmm. is that what you were saying? Mm -hmm. And so was it was the was the community that you grew up in relatively conservative? Oh no, no, no! I grew up um, with the exception of a couple of years in Vermont uh, when I was much younger. Um, my uh, middle grade and high school was all in a very small town called Etna, which is outside of Hanover, which is where Dartmouth was. So my dad, my parents both worked at the college, mm -hmm. but my neighbors, because we couldn't afford, my dad was an assistant professor. My mom was a secretary. We couldn't afford Hanover. It's very shishi and expensive. Mm -hmm. And so we lived in Etna, which is farmers. And But anyway, <laughs> my neighbors were, uh, the dad owned a, managed a gas station. And um, I don't know what Mrs. Balch did, but anyway, they, you know, they were hunters. We drove uh, an old Jeep around in the mud in the back field. Uh, snowmobiling was a part of my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, shooting cans off fences. They had chickens. We, you know, cut the head off. The chicken would run around. So it was that. <laughs> that was my world. And I spent more time at their house than at my own house. So 
um, uh, that was it was not a definitely not a conservative. Yeah, that sounds like a good like like training ground for the life that you were going to have. Uh, I'm curious that I didn't yeah. ask, but like, what kind of food did you eat growing up? Oh, good question. <laughs> well, when I was over, there was a lot of um, Vienna sausages, fried spam. I was a big mm-hmm. fan of that, you know, when the edges curl up and it becomes a little bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, spam, uh, Cool Whip. There was a lot of Cool Whip right <laughs> out of the container. Slim Jims, those uh-huh. weird pickled eggs on the counter at the conv- at the market back then. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking seventies. Um, my mom, my mom was a devotee of the convenience era. We were eating just the worst shit you can imagine. <laughs> Raviolios from a can. Yeah, like Chef Boyardee TV dinners, Mrs. Mrs. Ball's fish sticks on Friday because my mom was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, a lot of artificial, yeah. packaged, horrible food. I'm it's a miracle I'm alive. I mean, she cooked <laughs> also. She she cooked. She was a good right. baker, but there was a lot of you know. She definitely embraced the convenience era. And I think that was the generation that did that. I mean, I think, you know, oh, yeah. of, like, like my husband's parents, like, you know, they, they use a lot of, um, well, actually that's not true. They, they're good cooks, but yeah, I think that the, the, the idea of canned food was a novelty for, yes. I, mean, I guess their parents, more, more like my grandparents generation. Yeah. They loved the TV dinner and all that stuff. So, um, but so when did you start to like leave home and like find your own path and cook for yourself and discover non-canned ravioli? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Uh, when I got to college, it was a kind of a revelation because the food was, um, the food was, you know, I, it was real. <laughs> it, yeah. it was cafeteria food, but for me, that was gourmet, you know, mm-hmm. compared to what some of the things my mom had been serving. And, um, so, uh, that was all good. And then, but, but really, I think when I, right after college, I came out in a driveway car to San Francisco and I remember the first time I had Thai food. I remember the first time I had real Mexican food. I remember Mm -hmm. the first time I had sushi. I could tell you where it was. And all of these, I was just blown away. It was like so good, painful, you know, the spice, but I loved it. So that was just this sort of opening of this world of amazing food. A lot of it from, uh, you know, different cultures, you know, Mm -hmm. because the West Coast has all of the, you know, the Asian cuisine and the Central and South American because of so many, you know, people have immigrated here. So just completely went crazy with all of that food and then did a lot of traveling in my twenties and thirties as a journalist and always mm-hmm. wanted to try whatever, you know, go to the market, get the stuff from the stalls, the cheap, quick stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think just going as soon as I got out of New Hampshire was basically, and, and very much so arriving on the West coast. Well, it's so interesting because I mean, you mentioned the word curiosity earlier, and it's just like that feels like the most dominant aspect of your personality is that there, there's this a real curiosity about trying new things, writing about new things, choosing new subjects, and and also just what's so cool about it is it's like you follow your curiosity and then you generate this material that that becomes successful books. So, I guess like a question that I would have would be how do you maintain that curiosity throughout your life? Because I feel like so many people ultimately kind of you know, get beaten down by the world and they're just like, oh, I'm just gonna lay on the couch and watch Netflix. Like, forget it. So like, how have you, <laughs> how have you, have you held on to that aspect of yourself? Or is it just something you're not conscious of? I think it's partly because it, it's, it became my job. 
mm-hmm. became my career. And so, um, um, if I if I weren't doing that, if I if I suddenly stopped working, I I don't know that I'd travel as much as I do and uh, try as many things. It's just mm-hmm. I think that m- my work just brings me out of my home area so much. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think you're just you're you're curious or you're not. But yeah, definitely when you're young, you're a little more. You know, your world is. You're, it's all about reaching out and expanding your world, mm-hmm. meeting new people, trying new things. And then I think we, t- yeah, we tend to kind of constrict. Uh, yes. And I, I do f- feel like it's important to fight that because I know, I mean, I, I feel that, yes. you know, at my age, just kind of like, eh, just going to stay home. <laughs> well, especially after the pandemic too, it's like, I got so trained on being at home and now it's sort of like, okay, like I want to try this new Mexican place or I, I should get out of my apartment. And it really is sometimes yeah. hard to motivate away from home now just because I've got so used to it, but I think that's its own unique thing. But I guess yeah. my a question I would ask you would be like, do you, have you ever followed your curiosity down a path that didn't lead anywhere? I mean, professionally, like th- th- do you ever choose a subject and you're like, oh wait, this is not working? Yeah. Yeah, I I do uh, a lot. Um I uh for example, uh before I wrote this last book, I I thought I might write about um the science of disasters, major disasters and the aftermath and how do you prepare for them and rescue people um but that would have required me getting access to a major disaster right after it happened. And the mm. logistics of that. I mean, I'm a pretty pers- sort of um uh, persistent person, and I and I'm optimistic with what I can achieve about what I can achieve. But and so I was like, I would call the Red Cross. I'll call Doctors Without Borders. I'll call. You know, I was like, there's got to be a way to do this. And people would say, Okay, tell me where's this disaster going to hit? All right, <laughs> and the airport's likely to be shut down, and you want to get there within the first 24 hours. How are you going to do that? <laughs> there's got to be a way. Yeah. You know, so um, I spent a couple of months kind of banging my head against that wall before I realized it's not doable. It's not doable. Now, when you, when you tell your husband and your family that you want to head into a disaster like that, do they say, you know, honey, or whatever they call (laughs) you, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, we care about you. Please be safe. Don't go there. I mean, or maybe there's other situations like that, but have they been pretty hands off in terms of just letting you do your thing? Um, I'm trying to think, um, there was one, I'm trying to think of Ed, my husband is Ed, um, he's pretty, I mean, Ed is a far more cautious person than me. Mm-hmm. He's Jewish. <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> you um, need, you need one of those in every relationship. Yeah. I you got to have <laughs> one person with some common sense in their head. <laughs> or neuroses, work, however you, you know, look at it. Yeah. A working amygdala. <laughs> so, um, there was one time I was, this was way before I started writing books. I was working on, uh, uh I wrote a column for salon.com, which was an mm-hmm. early internet publication oh, yeah. i wrote a, i wrote a couple of things for them way back when too oh, yeah, yeah way back in the day it's like ooh, it's an internet magazine yeah. <laughs> and I, I wrote this column and i it was reported kind of about the human body and medicine and you know sort of the roachable elements of that <laughs> and i did a piece on bashful bladder do you know what that is Mm-mm. um but that it, there are some people mostly men because of the urinal situation who mm-hmm. uh just because people are standing close to them, they can't get started. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I experience bladder. that every time I go to the theater and see a Broadway show. I mean, I okay, really yeah. Have to pee. yeah, but there's happens. people who have it so badly that they um, can't 
even if somebody's outside the bathroom door with you know, like 20 yards away, they can't, you know, they, so they have like self catheterized themselves on plane trips. I mean, there's a oh my God. really extreme versions of it. Anyway, the therapy is um, the therapy is to have something called a pee buddy. <laughs> and that is somebody. Okay. So the person with bachelor bladder drinks lots and lots of water. So they're all ready to pee. And then you as the pee buddy, like you'd start uh, anyway, so uh, you'd start far away and then you get cl- progressively closer and, and the person's like, you know, you go, okay, now I'm standing in the kitchen and the person would yell out, okay, I'm peeing. And then they'd stop. <laughs> so, and I found on a, some bulletin board, I, I said, I'm, I'm volunteering to be somebody's pee buddy. And uh, so I went to this guy's house somewhere in the East Bay in the Bay area. And I, so after the fact, I told Ed about it. <laughs> and he's like, you went to so- so is that cheating? I don't know. Strangers <laughs> yeah. house to what did you do? Like, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> and it never, never even never occurred to me that that would, it's like, well, you know, it's uh, why, what would you, what could go wrong? <laughs> uh, so um, every now and then, he, yeah. Yeah, Ed is a little dismayed by my choices. <laughs> and and does your curiosity like, how, like in terms of your family, like, do you ask them a lot of questions about what's going on with them? And like, you know, how is your bowel movements today? <laughs> I mean, like, how, how, how curious are you about your own clan? I guess. Uh, um, well, my own family, I mean, my definition of family is um, the people who can be in the bathroom with you when you're on the toilet. Okay. Well, there okay. You that, go. That's family, you know, whether, I mean, there's, yeah, I've, I've got a few close friends who I could do that with. Um, We're very different people in that regard. I mean, I don't think I could, but I, I admire that about you. Really? Even like a, uh, uh, no, okay. I can barely I, go to the bathroom with, like, with myself. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could have another person in there. With me. <laughs> um, well, it's but, a, it's a small circle. I'll say, you know, okay. I mean, my grandkids, kids, uh, um, Ed, uh, definitely. And a couple of friends, a couple of close girlfriends. Um, right. And that's it. But, and I'd say, you know, mostly number one. Okay. Okay. Good. Just to clarify. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, you live in, in San Francisco, right? So <laughs> yeah. anything happens there. Um, so, okay. In terms of your process, I'm sure you get asked about this all the time. So this is the least original question I will ask you today, but um, in terms of writing these books, do they sort of just unfold naturally and you just sort of follow the thread or do you outline it first or how does it all work? Oh gosh. Outline. I do an outline like every week, the first six months. And and mm-hmm. I always think, Oh, now I'm, now I know where I'm going. And then like the next week I'm like, what am I, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do write, I do write outlines, but they're definitely just to kind of help me gather my thoughts along the way. And I'm constantly shuffling the order of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always, thinking I'm going to do a chapter, then deciding it's not as interesting as I thought it would be. And there's something else that's more interesting. Uh, so it's, it's constantly shifting for the first, at least the first six months, mm-hmm. well, uh, so maybe even nine months. So, okay. You know what? All the way through. I mean, I, might, <laughs> I have a, my editor, most of my books has asked for an additional chapter. What could mm. you do? What about, how about, I'm like, okay. Uh-huh. And I like set off, even though the, I've turned the book in and I think I'm done. And then I head off and report another chapter. So um, I am not one of those people who has the outline, like one, one, a, a mm-hmm. Roman numeral one, you know, that whole thing that you learn. 
in college or where high school yeah, or whatever. Well, it's I don't, interesting because it makes that, me think a little bit about um, control, but also letting go and like, <laughs> and yeah. um, and it's so funny because in terms of bringing it full circle, like that Freudian sense of like the anal personality, that's all about control. Um, but I find like a lot of my guests on this podcast, like there really is an interesting balance. Like I had a comedian on last week, Drew Drogi, who does improv. And we were talking about like the way like improv comedy, like has a structure to it. Like you have to, you know, do all these things to make the scene work. But then there's also this openness to just like letting it go where it's going to go. And, and I find that that seems to be what you're, these books almost feel like improv, like that you're just sort of yeah. setting a parameter, but then letting, seeing where it goes and then readjust. Oh yeah. 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 Even when I'm, you know, I, I, cause I go somewhere for a lot of the chapters and uh, I don't know what that chapter's really about until I get there. Mm -hmm. So I don't, it's not like I show up with a a very detailed list of questions Mm -hmm. to ask the researcher or whoever it is. Um, I have a, you know, I've done a little bit of background, so I'm not a complete idiot when I show up, but I, uh, I want them to lead me to the, what is the most interesting element. So Mm -hmm. um, I can't be one of those, you know, I can't control the chapter or the interview. I don't Mm -hmm. want to, Right, because that you know, I, I I know nothing really about this topic or this world. So you know, who am I to kind of steer the conversation mm-hmm. or the afternoon or the whatever happens? I just sort of um, show up and I I just I need something. I need a scene and I need something that can become a narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am controlling in that I'm trying to move things toward that or you know ask, could we do this? You know, I'm, I'm kind of pushing the limits of what they'll allow mm-hmm. uh, for the last book. You know, I really, I wanted to go out with an elephant response team, um, mm-hmm. which they were like, it's very dangerous. No, you cannot come along. <laughs> like, let me ask again. Let me ask him three more times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so, so I, so I'm definitely trying to steer it towards a more interesting scene for the reader, but mm-hmm. beyond that um, I'm just kind of letting, letting things happen. Things happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess also I'm curious in terms of like your creature comforts and putting yourself in these situations. I mean, are you pretty go with the flow? Like if you're, uh, you know, on a research trip and you have to sleep like in a, I don't know, somewhere uncomfortable or, or the food is disgusting. Like, I mean, are you yeah. pretty good about that kind of stuff? No, I enjoy, I love that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so, throw me, throw me in a tent somewhere uh-huh. or, um, I mean, I, I'm, I, don't enjoy getting up at 4am. But if that's something that you have to do, because the chimpanzees get up at that hour, and you've got to go to where they were sleeping. This is for Mm -hmm. a story for National Geographic years ago. That's okay, I'll get up at get up at four in the morning and hike in the dark. It's so cool once you get there. Um, So definitely, uh, I mean, maybe a little less so now than when I was younger. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. I'm less tolerant of long plane flights, that kind of thing. But once I'm there, yeah, I, 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 I'll sleep in a igloo. I'll sleep. Yeah, that's great. I've become so high maintenance as I've gotten older. Like I, now I need two pillows. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm a little bit of a diva, but um, I'm curious, like, have you ever found yourself like in a perilous situation in all of this research or with your recklessness, like wound up somewhere like, okay, this is not safe or this is not a good thing Uh, yeah one time um i was in tokyo and i was i I was reporting in this uh, it was had to do with sumo wrestlers (laughs) that 
um, region of Tokyo is kind of an older neighborhood. And there are, um, you know, it was, I was done with my reporting. I'm just wandering around and I, I like to just go into a cafe or a bar and just hang out and because I don't want to go back to my hotel. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm less, I'm less these days. I may go back to my hotel (laughs) because I'm old now, but I went, (laughs) uh, there was this little, like, it's kind of, you know, cute looking little, like it was nighttime. It was a bar. So I went in and, you know, as a woman walking into this bar, which was mostly men, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time I thought, oh, you know, so, (laughs) uh, so I started talking to this guy and, um, at one point, I noticed that his uh, little finger was, you know, cut off, stopped at the knuckle. And, and I okay. said, I said, oh, what happened to your finger? And he, his English wasn't that great. And he goes, mistake. And then I went and I was like, oh, fuck, it's a Yakuza. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he, you know, and, and I said, like, oh, I, I, I need to leave now. But no, no, I skipped the part where he's like, oh, there's this place next door. And he described it and he goes, you should see it. And it was some kind of club where he, like, he had his own bottle of brandy. It was obviously some wealthy gangster Yakuza hangout. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll go with you. <laughs> And then I, and then I, there was, that was when I saw the finger and then I was like, oh my God. And I'm like, I have to go. And he goes, you can't go. And I oh remember running out the, running up the stairs because it was a basement place. And he said, I'll kill you. Really? He <laughs> said, I'll kill you. And I was like, holy shit, the Yakuza are going to kill me. Wow. You might've had a very different life. If you've gone to that club, you might still be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, anyway, um, I'm sure it was, you know, it was a, an idle threat, but nonetheless, it, I was a little nervous on the walk home. So when you travel with your family, are they as adventurous as you are? I mean, do they are they up for going to unexpected places and eating things that they don't yeah, normally eat? Yeah, but it's a kind of a different mindset when I travel with a group, you know, in the family. It's often um, it's Ed's family because my parents are both dead and my brother lives in South Carolina and he's not very adventurous mm-hmm. or in the same way, I should say. Um, but so it's often a big like four generations, you know, my husband, Mm -hmm. his mom is 97. Uh, My stepdaughter who's in her thirties and the, Mm -hmm. and the kids who are, you know, five and seven, their kids. So it's, you know, a span. So it's not a lot of things you can do with this. Yeah. That's a lot of people from, from, from five to 97, you know, something that works of the white Lotus or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love that show. Um, so So, you know, you tend to, it, it, that kind of determines what you go and do. But I've, there's a, um, uh, I used to travel with this friend of mine, Stephanie from uh, my friend from college. And we, she's of a similar mindset and we would go and do anything. We, and we would take a lot of stupid risks and it, it, you know, we, we had what we called the luck of the stupid because we just said yes to anything and went mm-hmm. anywhere with anybody at any time. And we were fine. And um, yeah. we have, we have a lot of amazing memories of, of that, but um, a family trip is, yeah, it's going to be different. I love, I mean, that's, that just makes me think so much of the yes. And from improv, just mm-hmm. like, I mean, even like the fact that you're on this podcast is a, is a, is a big yes. And like some random guy on Twitter is like, come on my podcast. Like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, I just realized that we hadn't really covered too much about like cooking and that kind of stuff. So are you a cook at home? Do you like to cook? Uh, I'm married to a wonderful cook and, and- Ed, Ed is yes. a great, Ed, yeah, Ed, Ed is a good cook. He's really good. And he likes to cook. 
And I do not, I find it very stressful to try mm-hmm. to manage more than one burner at a time. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, I, I mean, I used to do more of it when I was younger, but after, you know, after I met Ed, you know, and because he's so good at it and because he likes to do it over the years, I've just sort of seen all of it to him. Yeah. I'm, I would much rather clean up afterwards. Than and prepare. do you have favorite dishes that he makes or like the signature dishes? Oh, that, God, uh... He makes so many amazing, he makes this incredible uh, chili this uh-huh. you know spicy uh, bean and beef, just this rich, dark, amazing ch- chili that he makes um, once a year on Super Bowl. He's not a big Super Bowl guy, but he has a couple people over, and he makes that chili. He makes amazing fish tacos. He makes we have a little one of those little pizza ovens that's out on the back deck, uh, so he makes his own crust. Uh-huh. Baker. He made for a while during COVID. He went through this phase where he was making bagels from scratch. Wow, that's specific. Oh, no. Okay, and, and they really, were really good. Yeah, he really is Jewish. You're, you weren't mm-hmm. kidding. No, <laughs> no, no, I'm not kidding. No, they were yeah. amazing. They were so good. It's like a three day process. You know, it's it's absurd, but you know, it, right. it was COVID. Uh, so, um, so, so you, yeah, you, you like his cooking. I guess I'm trying to get a sense of like if, if you were home alone and you had to feed yourself, like. <laughs> what would you what would you be making for yourself? <laughs> um oh I'm yeah the the laziness would come into play. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I'd I'd make like a quick sort of quesadilla kind of mm-hmm. thing, like cheese and avocado and beans and hot sauce, kind of throw it in a pan, like that yeah. kind of thing, or um pesto pasta, um some kind of eggy scramble thing. I'd be, you know, or I'd get takeout. Or or the other thing I do, you know, if Ed's out of town is um, get together with some girlfriend I haven't seen in a while and go out, you yeah. know, cause you tend not to do that. You know, when you live with someone, you're, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you, you don't see people one-on-one as much and I miss that. So, um, I'll use that as a opportunity to, to go out. Um, yeah. It's so, you almost, and I'm, as, as you're talking, I'm like, you seem like somebody who really craves experience, even if that means like experiencing Ed's food, but like to just be alone in your kitchen, it almost feels like that's disappointing. Even when you talked about being in Japan and like going back to your hotel room, like being disappointing, like you wanted to be out in the world. So yeah. I, I think there's certain people like that, you know, who don't want to be alone in their kitchen. You know, no, to me, themselves. no, no, no. It feels, you know, uh, yeah. To like, throw something together for myself feels, mm-hmm. I mean, I did, and that, you know, I've lived alone yeah. you know, for a couple of years. I lived alone. I was between partners and uh, there's something kind of, yeah, I don't, it, and this is stupid because it shouldn't be that way, but it kind of feels, it just kind of feels sad, partly because of my inability to do anything interesting in the kitchen, but then, mm-hmm. you know, and then like, I'll, you know, I'll sit and watch like a friend's rerun or something and go, <laughs> right. this is so pathetic. <laughs> yeah. But it makes you feel less alone. I know what that's like, you know, when you yeah. just sort of, you don't want to, I mean, even like having like an Amazon echo now, I just have it like blasting show tunes while I cook just so I don't have to feel alone yeah. when my husband's out of town. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And my, my mother-in-law was 97. She's always got MSNBC like blaring in the background. Uh-huh. And we're always telling her, like, turn it off. The politics upsets her, but she she wants the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I think that's yeah. a part of it. Just to, um, yeah, have a voice in the background. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, and as you're talking to, like, I'm thinking about you as a subject, like, like feeding yourself as sort of like you being like your own subject versus like writing about other people and caring about other stories and like, and I mean, in, in your books, like, you are present, but they're 
there's not really, I mean, from at least just this book, I haven't read all your books yet. Like, it doesn't feel like they're their autobiography. They're more about something. Um, so it's, it, there was, seems to be some kind of nexus then between like not wanting to be alone with just yourself and wanting to be out in the world and also what you write about. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love being out in the world. COVID was really... Uh, an adjustment for me to yeah. not go anywhere for that mm-hmm. amount of time. Um, what I, I mean, I like writing, but what I love is about what I do is that I you know, have this, it's like having this key to these little worlds that you would otherwise never step into. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I have this access pass by being a writer, a nonfiction mm-hmm. writer. And <clears throat> that's what I, that's what I love. Yeah. Um, well, every podcast starts with what did you have for lunch, but then it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? <laughs> oh, Ed is, Ed is making some kind of um, fried rice extravaganza. It's a big rice day because I okay. had the leftover. Yeah, but he's doing some fried rice thing. I don't know. He gets a lot of stuff off the New York Times website. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm not sure. He does an amazing Mapo tofu thing with mm, man, really good. good. That's some New York Times thing. So, so do you ever... Yeah, are you are you critical ever if like if it comes out a little gummy or like something's a little too spicy? I mean, do you weigh in? I in my head, I'm like 99% his biggest fan, but yeah. he zeroes in on the time. You know, there's every now and then there's something where I'm like it's it's a little funny, or I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and he's like, You hate it. And I was like, I didn't say I hate it. It's not one of my favorites, but I didn't hate it. You hate it. No, I don't. <laughs> there's one time where I just he had made some pasta with it had kind of an anchovy pasty some kind of tube that has anchovy mm-hmm. there was a lot of that in it and, and <laughs> he um he's like you hate it and i just said well no it just sort of took me by surprise so now it's become known as the surprising pasta <laughs> we're gonna so, be having the surprising pasta yeah that sounds good actually i like anchovies and pasta but i know what you mean it could be too much like if, if, if it has that extra like aquarium flavor to it yeah then. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. So are there any foods that you hate like and won't eat? Yes. Uh, I don't. Oh, that I hate. Um, or don't eat or avoid. capers. Oh, I don't, okay. I don't like, uh, yeah. Capers. I don't, I'm not a fan of the caper, but they're easy to set aside. The capers, they're uh-huh. small and portable. Um, I don't. Uh, uni, that sushi, uh-huh. the sea urchin. I, I've not been able to embrace that flavor. Really? Okay. Just the, I wonder if there's like a, a, a connection between the anchovy paste to the capers and the uni, they all kind of feel. Yeah. Like I think you may be on something like that. That could well be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love raw oysters. It's one of my favorite foods huh. is, is fresh, a fresh raw oyster, hmm. but the uni is kind of a, it's not uriny, but it's a horse sweaty kind of I think I may have not had a terribly fresh the first time I had it because the second uh, time I had it was in Tokyo and it was my editor took me to this really nice sushi place and it was it was better it was still a challenge for me but mm-hmm. do you like it I love it I mean I I we just went to a sushi place that opened up in our neighborhood and we had it and it was flown in from Japan and it was so custardy and like yeah. surprising like I don't know there's something about that texture that that is exciting to me but um, but when you say horse urine or horse pee, I, remember, <laughs> I don't know if it was horse urine or urine and horse, but I can also see what you, there is that funk to it for sure. A, it's got a funk. Yeah. The, the funk factor is yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not, 
yeah, I, I'm like, I'm not a big kombucha drinker. What about like, cheese, like funky cheese? Do you like like a really blue? I do. I like blue cheese. Yeah. And yeah, I like okay. one time I had uh, the extreme end of that would be Igunok, which is a walrus that is walrus flesh that's buried in a limestone beach and just left there. So it ferments. Uh, where, where, rots. Where, where did you have that? Uh, up in the Arctic. Wow. Okay. Yeah. My friend, um, Andrew is, in, is from, uh, Alaska and from an Inuit family and, and he had, they had whale that was similarly fermented. <gasps> oh, you know, yeah. I love, I love, um, um, which is, it's, it's, it's just the skin and blubber. It, uh, mm-hmm. I, it's like swimming up to, it was narwhal. In fact, mm. that the local, uh, hunter hunters had killed and it was, so it was very fresh. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like gym flooring, you know, kind of bounces when you set it down on the table. Uh, but it's sort of like swimming up to a narwhal and just taking a bite out of it, you know. Uh, it, but it's really good. It's kind of nutty, mushroomy, mm. r- really, really good. But Igunok was very fermenty. That's a little hard to take. Do you have yeah. curiosity as a subject of like where food comes from, the whole like factory farming versus like organic eggs versus pasture. Like, I mean, like has, I know that it's been written about a ton by like Michael Pollan and stuff, but yeah, does, does that, I mean, as somebody who's so curious about everything, do you think a lot about where your food comes from? Um, I, yeah, I do think about, I, I think about that. And I also think about um, the bullshit factor and the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, for a long time, I don't know, maybe still the word organic wasn't really, yeah, didn't really mean anything. And a lot of companies, you know, a lot of, big corporations sort of jumped on the bag wagon. I was like, we can just call it organic. And what does that mean? Free range, same thing. It's like, yes. so the little pen that they're in, they can walk two feet. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> mean it. it's so funny because in my yeah. grocery store, there's like literally like in a row, it's all the same company. And it's like for five seventy nine you get eggs for like yeah. six seventy nine you get organic eggs for seven seventy nine yeah. you get pasture raised organic eggs. And it's sort of yeah. like, how is this regulated? Yeah. And I read this really good book called the secret life of groceries by Benjamin mm-hmm. Lore, who, okay. It, I recommend that book, but he kind of dives into that and talks about how, you know, we, the modern urban consumer, we demand free range, we demand organic, we demand um, sustainable. And all of these labels, you know, the, the companies have to spend extra money to uh, get to that point, And mm-hmm. they reap that back by um, screwing the people, the people on like the delivery chain, the factory, you know, the people who work in the processing. Uh, so he, you know, he talked a lot about those individuals and, and how hard it is for them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, also just the fact that the inspections happen once a year or never, or, right. you know, what does it mean legally? And really, really interesting book. Um, I guess I do. I am curious about groceries because I love that book. Yeah, the the backstory of what we eat and what we buy and how it's how it came to be. I I I love that story. Overwhelming. I mean, I find like, and also in terms of psychology and food. I mean, there is a certain amount of like wanting to um, what's the word like redeem yourself or sort of um, give yourself like a pat on the back and be like, well, I am. I did. You know, I'm eating like a dead animal, but at least this one had a good life. Yeah, virtue signaling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Trying to make yeah. yourself feel better. You're like, well, I am eating beef, but it's it's free range, and yeah, yeah. they were treated. Yeah. Had a lovely yeah. life, you know. That's uh, that. Have you ever, do you ever watch Portlandia? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a great sketch where like 
Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein are at a restaurant and they're like learning about the chicken they're going to have that night. And then the <laughs> woman's like, can I show you this video? Or like she drives yeah. them out to like the farm so they yeah. can look at like, like, did he have a good education? It was, you know, it's just like absurd. But yeah. It sort of feels real. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was a Curb Your Enthusiasm too, where uh, <laughs> Larry David goes to, he pretends that he cares about this, the backstory of his food. He's trying to win over Woody Harrelson to get him oh, to yeah, the park, you know, yeah, and he's yeah. like, Oh yeah, no, I, I actually, I, uh, I support, I, I raised my own cow and he's like bribes <laughs> some guy. And oh yeah. Clansman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a really funny episode. Yeah. It's, it's, it is absurd, but you know, at the same time, it's sort of, you want to do your best, but you can't, it, it just feels a quicker question of how far do you go? Yeah. And I mean, and, even in right. terms of eggs, like, you know, I mean, I don't even know which ones to buy anymore, but I try to buy the ones that seem the best. I know it can, it, it can be expensive cage free free range <laughs> yeah there's all these sort of and then like how how do you and then there was this that whole story in the new yorker recently about this guy who's taking advantage of that basically selling factory farmed crap and and uh claiming i mean he had he would buy up struggling ranch ranches you know yeah. producing i think it was beef He'd buy them up because they'd already had the organic certification, and then he would be just doing run-of-the-mill, oh my god, non-sustainable GMO stuff. It, uh, it oh, was, wow. a, yeah, such a scammer. But anyway, I was like, well, there was that restaurant that got exposed in the New York Times that my that my husband's yes. from the Pacific Northwest. So he, one year oh, we like yeah. saved up and we went to that restaurant. It was called the Willows Inn on Lummi Island. Yeah, and we ate this food, and when and so interesting psychologically how believing that it was all local made it made it one of the most memorable meals of our lives we we're like oh my god they caught the salmon this morning yep. and like this clam was picked off the beach and then it, it turns out like he was getting like some of the stuff yes. from, like off trucks and like from costco yes. yeah like, so oh, because somebody yeah i remember i read that story too and it was you know that somebody was like pointing out in order to feed the numbers of people that they have and they looked at like what's available on this tiny island. It's like there yeah. is no way you're right. feeding all these yeah. people on, the, on this island. But they got away with it. There was a place here that just closed. Belcampo was a, mm-hmm. a. Oh yeah, we had that here too in LA. Yeah, yeah, that they were caught um, just shipping in, you know, like Conagra stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. funny how like the brain works though, because like Craig got me also the cookbook for that restaurant, the Willows and cookbook. And then when the scandal broke, I'm like, well, we have to get rid of this cookbook. And he was like, absolutely not. He's like, no, because that still was a good experience. Like yeah. that was a really positive experience. I'm like, but it wasn't real. And it's just, but it, yeah. it, for him, he doesn't want to take away the memory. Well, anyway, yeah. Mary, this was, uh, I think your therapy session has now come to an end, but did we cover <laughs> all of your food issues? Do you feel well, like? I think we, I think we, I think we did. Yeah. yeah. I think we've, we've covered everything and thank you. We, yeah. I got the whole hour not. 50 minutes. So you're yeah, very you generous. Did get the whole hour, of course. But um, I think you got a very good diagnosis as being just a very curious adventurer who just doesn't like uni. Otherwise, yeah. you got a good, good report card. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Well, I'm excited to read all of your books. I'm a huge fan now. So thanks for taking the time to do lunch therapy. Oh, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye.